0: You're listening to episode 42 of A Step Forward, and in this episode, we are asking how can orientation and mobility specialists help support the special ed teachers that we work with? Our guest today is Braylon Martin, and I cannot wait for you to meet her. Welcome to A Step Forward, a podcast for educators who want to help their students lead their most independent and successful lives. I'm Cassie Maloney. As an orientation and mobility specialist, I believe that you don't need to be perfect in order to be effective. Join me this week and every week for inspirational and informational ideas to help you make a significant impact in your students' lives as we explore the notion that in order to make progress, all you need to do is take a step forward. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy August. It is such a different August than usual. I don't even know how to feel. For just a few moments before we get into our actual episode, I just wanted to take a break, a little second, and touch base with you. It's been a minute since I've done that. I'll tell you a little bit about what's going on in my own personal life. And then we'll also talk about what's going on with Allied in general, what you can look forward to. Then we'll get into this amazing, amazing episode. So, on the personal level, it's been a really fun, very interesting summer. I have worked the whole time, but my hours have had to be shifted quite a bit a few hours here, a few hours there, a few hours here, and always being. Working themselves around my children and their needs. And I honestly have just loved getting to spend so much time with my kids where we can do a lot of fun stuff. And we have been learning, but mostly it's just been hanging out in nature and being silly and watching movies and having lots of fun. I hope that this summer goes down in their memories. Like a beautiful time, even though they had to entertain themselves while I was working. So that's really all that I've been up to in my own personal life. But on the professional forefront, Allied has been doing some amazing things. And we'll get into some more of the stuff later on in other podcast episodes. But we've already had 150 people join Clarity. You guys are all so amazing. I could not have even imagined we would have that many people in our first launch or promotional period of time. Clarity, if you don't know real quick, is our digital subscription of lesson plans that you get 10 every single month, along with the digital materials that go along with those lesson plans. And the community meets twice a month, either live, if you can join us live, or if you want to watch the replay that's in the portal for you as well. And already the inspiration and ideas have been flowing and making this transition so much easier. Definitely a very different transition from summer to new school year than it ever has been in the past. And so to have these ideas, this inspiration, this information coming from the entire community, even for me, and I think for everybody else has been really something that we know we can look back on. And pull whenever we need that information. The other really cool big thing that we are gearing up for is our very first complete joint venture conference. And by that, I mean we are teaming up with a group of assistive technology specialists to host an assistive technology and trends online conference in early October. We are definitely making it so that it applies to O&M specialists and TVIs and AT specialists. But as long as you are supporting your students with assistive technology and your students have visual impairments, this is going to be such a fantastic and great online conference that's coming up the very first few weeks in October. And then we'll be announcing more about that later on. And we do actually have a wait list And that waitlist will get early bird pricing. So we're not releasing early bird pricing anywhere else besides the waitlist. So go to the link that's in these show notes and you will have the option to sign up for that waitlist. And then of course, the symposium planning committee is getting ready to pick back up. We took a little break off in July. I think we all needed it and we thought the community needed it as well. And we're going to be back and ready. So that's what we've got going on. Personally and professionally. So, today we get to talk with one of the most fabulous special education teachers that I've gotten to meet and get to know. And I really look up to this woman because she has so many great ideas and she really puts forth so much extra effort and it really shows. And not only that, but she's like personable, she's funny. And she really has a really great way of going about things. This week, I get to interview Braylon Martin. She is a K through second grade special education teacher with a passion for providing fun and engaging lessons for her students. For Braylin, the key to a successful classroom is the collaboration between all of the staff members. Besides teaching, Braylon enjoys making YouTube videos for educators to learn more about classroom management, organization, and staff collaboration. And one thing I love about this episode is we talk a lot about collaboration. This is the whole purpose of it. And I really wanted to have Braylon on specifically because we as o specialists only spend 1% of our students' waking lives with them. Otherwise, they are with other people. And we can't control what other people do, how other people talk to them, where other people walk in relation to them. But we can start to collaborate with Others, and we can really start to hone in our own collaboration skills. So, I wanted her expertise to show us a different perspective of how we can do that. All right, let's go to the show. Welcome to the podcast, Braylon. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Well, the very first thing I know you from Instagram, I I have been following you for a little while and love all the things that you talk about as a special educator, but you are brand new to our community. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself.
1: Sure. So like you said, I'm Braylon. I am a special ed teacher. I just finished my third year, which is really cool. And I've mostly focused on behavior challenges and some more severe disabilities that have some pretty impacted behaviors too. So a lot of students with Down syndrome, a lot of students on the autism spectrum, stuff like that. And I did go to school for special ed. So I have a degree in special ed. And then for my master's, I went and did ABA and early childhood and special ed. And so That is always in the back of my mind. I decided to stay in the classroom and not work, you know, at a clinic or an agency doing behavior stuff, but that has really kind of impacted and affected my teaching, just that background and that understanding. So yeah, I like being on Instagram. It's really fun to like interact with other educators or people who work with people with disabilities. It's been so fun. And yeah, I learn a lot every day. So I feel like that is always helping me in my practice too. I'm always like wanting to learn. I'm like a person who loves learning. I'll read any book. I'll read any journal article. I'll read anything. I'll listen to any podcast because I just want to keep getting better at what I do. So
0: how exciting. Do you have a specific age that you teach? Obviously not one year age, but elementary, secondary? Elementary. I prefer like early
1: childhood if I could as young as possible. Very fun. Mm
0: -hmm. And you mentioned also that you studied ABA. How is that bringing ABA into your special ed classroom when every single student is really unique?
1: Yeah, literally, right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The good thing about ABA, so I chose not to really use it and practice it. So I could have like gone full force into it, but I chose to be in the classroom. And The reason I did was that exact thing you're trying to hit at, which is that I wanted to be with the kids and I wanted to see each of them differently. And a lot of ABA practices do kind of lend themselves to that because you write a behavior plan. And so you have to observe kids, gather data, talk to parents, talk to the whole community around the child, and then create your behavior plan. Well, that's what a good person should do. Who knows how some people are acting. And so I think that has really helped me in my classroom because I'll usually get a maximum of like. 11 to 12 students, and I can kind of take them one at a time and kind of see what they need basically. But I do think that a lot of the basic practices of behavior and modifying behavior and understanding the function of it, you can do some like broad things for every kid that kind of like help and minimize just from what you're doing in the classroom. So it has helped me a lot, honestly, but I do like academics too and like life skills. So I just don't want to give all that up.
0: Great. I completely can understand that. I loved the ABA class that I took in college because to me, like, it's like adding science to psychology in a way. And I completely was drawn to it. I know that there's some controversy around ABA, so we won't even like really get into that, but. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: We won't, we won't get into that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But I do see like practices as a good tool. So, when you're looking at your classroom, I just want to paint a picture of you had around mm-hmm. 11 kids a year and they're in your classroom full time. Yep. And how many paraprofessionals do you have usually?
1: Between two to three. I've had one sometimes. It just depends on the year and the budget and the
0: needs of the kids. That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. So, for you, what was the hardest part about? Taking your whole classroom and moving it virtual.
1: Oh my gosh. Wow. I had this weird, actually weird moment because I was switching schools. March 13th was my last day at my other school, and I was supposed to start my new job March 16th. And March 16th, obviously, was the day that the world fell apart and everything shut down. So I immediately had kids virtually. And it was a good shift. It was not like weird or anything. But I immediately had like six kids virtual that I had never met. And so that was interesting because I was looking forward to like setting the classroom up, like getting to know them. Like I said, working on the behavior pieces of it. So I do think that the hardest part with moving my class virtually was just the schedule of it. And I've been saying this to some of my teacher friends, but it became teaching is already a personal thing or working with kids is already like a deeply emotional, personal thing to people who are really passionate about it. But it takes it another level when you're entering somebody's house, because now you're, and I used to be a home visitor and you're trying to be really respectful of like people's houses. But when you're like on zoom, you're like really, really looking into somebody's life. And so I think that was like a big thing for me being very respectful seeing for the first time how parents and kids navigate challenges and behaviors. Because I had this like window into their life and kids with some significant disabilities, kids that are nonverbal, watching the parents navigate that. So I think if I can make this succinct, it's like in my classroom, I had control of the kids, of the behaviors, of what I expected of them, of the routine and the schedule. And then I'm switching it to be virtual and I have no control over any of that. And it's up to the parents to follow through with what I'm trying to say to them, but they're also working. And so just kind of trying to navigate all the nuanced pieces of that while sitting on Zoom and looking into somebody's living room. So it was a lot of trial and error <laughs> to try and figure it out and have different sessions with kids who are like not listening and walking around you know, and all sorts of stuff like that. So, and I got to work with some o people on Zoom too and do some co-treating of that. And that was really fascinating. So we can totally get into that.
0: Yes, I absolutely want to get into that. You're the second person that I've talked to in the past few weeks who has raved about co-teaching on the virtual. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Can we also talk about, like you mentioned scheduling. So for your classroom, what did the schedule look like? Did you have like circle time class or like, what did you do? Oh my gosh. Yeah,
1: (laughs) everything. (laughs) So we did, you know, everybody uses a different platform, Google Classroom, Seesaw, whatever you want. So we had one of those platforms and, but we also uploaded YouTube videos to a private YouTube channel. So I had three levels of kids. I broke them into three levels and per level, they would have math lessons and reading lessons. And then the whole group would have a morning meeting every morning, but it would have been recorded because some kids, they just couldn't, people couldn't access them at the same time. And for kids with disabilities, they're not able to access their own computer by themselves. They need the parents to sit with them and log on because they're young kids with special needs. And so we recorded videos, me and my staff for the three different levels, and we would release them every day. It was a lot of work. And so the parents then could have freedom to do the math lesson, you know, at 9pm if they had to. And we didn't require them to do any actual like physical writing stuff unless they wanted to because you need a lot of materials and equipment and I work in the city and it just wasn't feasible and possible. But my paraprofessionals, for their role was they ran classroom meetings, one at 10 a.m. and one at 2 p.m. So we gave the links free to the parents if they wanted to. And parents really did take advantage of that because they could set their kid up in front of the computer. It was only 15 to 20 minutes. They could see all the staff members' faces. Each staff member might do like a YouTube video, sing a song, laugh with the kids, keep them entertained. And it was like a fun way to bring everybody together. And it was pretty stress-free. So that was one of the best things we ever did. And so that wasn't on me, that was on them. And I would log in when I needed to, but that was kind of the schedule of how we did it. I mean, it's hard to replicate eight hours a day of school online. They definitely didn't get the same amount of time as they would in the classroom, but we tried the best we could to provide as many opportunities as possible to do some learning. So
0: yeah, what you are describing is the most that I've heard anybody describe.
1: Yeah. It was so much work. I like had a couple meltdowns. But, <laughs> but I, we had help, yeah.
0: Yeah, but I could see why if you're doing like I love the fact that you broke your students down into three different levels because in like Gen Ed, they probably wouldn't even think to do that. And and I'm sorry if I'm stepping on any Gen Ed teachers' toes right now, but just having gone through the virtual end of Gen Ed, you know, with my own kids. It was definitely not that much broken down, and especially because your kids probably need it. They're on different levels all day long, which is why you only have 11 when Gen Ed typically has 30, because they need that much more individualized instruction.
1: For sure. I could have broken it down into 11 groups if I really, really, to be honest, but I I wouldn't have been able to do it. But it was helpful because some kids, they already were doing inclusion because Mm -hmm yeah, in the school year, that's what they're doing. So some of them could actually access their gen ed stuff. So it gave them more options. So they would have access to the gen ed stuff or my stuff and they could kind of pick and choose and do both depending on the parents' involvement level and stuff like that. So it was a ton of work, but I'm really grateful. And my whole school was doing stuff like that. Like even the gen ed teachers were doing so much everyday lessons every day. It was incredible. And I'm grateful because no matter what happens, I mean, I don't know what you know, everybody's state is different. But going back, I guess I saw some regression, but really not as much as I thought I would see because they were involved every single day,
0: which was great. And what I've noticed at home is that like my children didn't get as like long of a time at school, obviously, but because I know their nuances and maybe also because I'm a special ed teacher, like I'm not going to separate that out. Right. I felt like they they did not meet their, the Texas standards. All right, let's just be honest about that. But they're still making progress. And every day we still do a little bit of work, a little bit of journaling or writing letters or things like that. And it was a little bit like more concentrated, I guess I'd say. So yeah, maybe there's some
1: hope that- Some (laughs) hope, I'm crossing my fingers for the people listening, you know? Some hope. I know. I know.
0: Okay, so I have one last question about teaching virtually. And I think this is something that's kind of on everybody's mind, but I'd love to hear your perspective of how things were from a special educator's point of view. And that I noticed that it was harder to reach some parents than it was others. And I noticed just across the board in our district, it was harder to get internet and teach virtually to all of our students given that all the parents have different social economic statuses they have different things that they have in their houses and they have different job duties like work duties and i'd love to hear from you what what you experienced on that end was it harder to get in touch with some parents or was it harder to teach some of your students virtually
1: yeah i think that you know school's going online really emphasized different disparities and I know that here in Boston, I teach in the city, they tried to remedy that. So they actually provided Chromebooks to every kid. I think it was like second grade and up. And we're trying to like kind of close that gap to reach more of the students. And I think that was great because it really did help in a lot of ways, but it still didn't like fix the situation of like parents needing to support and access and, you know, Wi-Fi strength and all the other things that kind of go along with teaching at home and learning at home. And so for me, I had some issues with parents who were working all day and they couldn't really help their kid or super busy or were overwhelmed. And I would call them and they wouldn't really respond. And I did have a couple parents where I needed to kind of coach them through how to add words to their kids' devices. And that was overwhelming to them. So they just wouldn't do it. It was just, I think, yeah, it kind of exposed a lot of these like cracks in our system when it comes to equity. And so that was was really tricky, but I think that's one thing I saw and I know a lot of people at my school saw that and I know we'll probably see that even more going forward is just yeah, these huge gaps and these huge huge disparities.
0: Yeah, we saw that too. Have your schools said what they're doing next year? So in Massachusetts, they've given very loose
1: loose guidelines. One thing about Massachusetts is we only finished school Maybe half of a month ago, or like a month ago, because everybody kind of goes till mid June or the end of June, and we don't start again till after Labor Day. So they kind of have a little bit of wiggle room to kind of see how other places are doing it. So, what they've said so far is just that kids will have to wear masks three feet apart in desks, small stuff like that. But they haven't given or rolled out like all of their ideas yet because they still kind of have like a month and a half before anything happens.
0: True. And just for you guys listening, we are recording this in um, early to mid-July. So here in Texas, they're just starting to say what they're going to do. I know Austin just this week posted that they were going to have either full online or full in-person. And there's just right. I mean, like, I thought the hybrid model was going to be okay, not great, but that as a parent who also works full-time. Luckily, I work for myself, so it's a little different. But how do you choose? Like, what if you make the wrong choice? And it feels like we're choosing between the possibility of getting sick, but being educated by somebody who is an educator, and which most parents, like, are not. I'm not a kindergarten teacher, so I don't know how to Mm -hmm. do things like that. Or, like, the social... And emotional needs. So you're like choosing between a rock and a hard place, I guess.
1: Yeah. And it's a really tricky choice to put on a parent and a teacher because we don't know what's gonna happen. So if you make that choice, you're locked in. But like what do we know about that? And how can you get out of your choice if it's the wrong one for your family? And I can say this now because I don't work for these this school district anymore, but my previous school district, they're doing ESY. So they're doing like summer school for kids with disabilities, and it was supposed to be online. And so they made that choice. A lot of parents, at least in Massachusetts, we don't have daycares open yet. They're just starting to kind of open. But this week, that district said that they want all of their staff to come in starting next week and teach from their classroom, Mm -hmm. even if it's virtual, so that they can have the staff there. So the staff now has to report to the building to sit and work on their computer from eight to three. But it's like parents can't send their kids to daycare. So it's like, it's really, like I said before, it's just exposing like layers and layers of like disparities and inequalities and challenges on all fronts. And it's so emotional. It's so emotionally driven. And I think it's really taking a toll. And I feel for people. Luckily, I don't have any kids. So I can make that decision for just me, myself. But I couldn't imagine making it for your family, you know, your whole family. So,
0: yeah. And thinking about even the disparities, when I look around, this has kind of always been the case. The people making the decisions are not the people with the boots on the ground. They're not the people that, of course,
1: (laughs) so awful.
0: (laughs) I know. That part has always been really hard to see if we look even at the color spectrum of skin color, who's making gender and skin color, who's making these decisions, and then who's actually dealing with the brunt of the decisions. It's typically completely different gender, completely different roles in their family, completely different SES status, just like different lives, and also like their backgrounds as well, the different things that. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, the different things that our black female teachers have to deal with are not the same things as the white male leaders.
1: Yes. Yes. Even if we're in the same field. Seriously. I mean, as simple as like the people making the decisions are having virtual meetings while they can order their groceries to be delivered. That right there is the perfect vision of privilege and the fact that that's their life circumstance, but that's not everybody else's. And so it's, yeah, it's really tricky. And I think also with the special ed lens, I mean, yes, kids have autism and they have all these other things, but some disabilities are from like challenges at birth. A lot of them have additional things, autoimmune. If you take certain types of ADHD meds, you're more susceptible to different things because you're suppressing different parts of your system. It's a disability ableism issue just as much as it is a race and socioeconomic status issue. And I think as people who work with all different types of kids, walks of life with disabilities, it's like this is the part where everything is converging. And every person is seeing that all the, I hate to use the word minority, but all the issues that people have pushed down, if you're not part of the majority thought, they're all coming together at once and they're all being affected by this. So it's a big Big deal.
0: It is a big, big deal. Now that we're actually on this topic, which was not something that I had intended on talking about, but it came up naturally. As special educators, is there anything that we can do to recognize or help with that disparity? Given that, you know, we're talking to people who might feel like I'm just one person, what can I do?
1: Yeah. I think, honestly, it's tricky because I can't think of one thing besides keeping your mindset. (laughs) Like, as you see the world, looking at it through the lens of, is everybody included? Is everybody's thoughts heard? Are we actually reaching every kid? And that's what a special ed teacher is best at. You're in front of your classroom and you're about to say something to the class and you're thinking in your head, okay, how am I going to reach this kid who... Has a vision impairment? How am I going to reach this kid who is nonverbal? And so that's already running through your head just for you to make an announcement in your classroom. And I think keeping that lens as you're seeing the world, being able to speak up when things are not right. I mean, you don't have to like, you know, make a public massive statement and change the world, but I think it starts with each person being aware of the day to day, you know, equity problems that are affecting them, you know, just being mindful of that. And I think we, As special ed teachers, we are so good at advocating for kids' abilities. Like, if we're in a public school setting, you don't have a ramp outside, get a ramp because my kid needs a ramp. We will go at that hardcore, you know, and we will even go into other kids or other classrooms and say, I'm going to teach you about autism so you can better be prepared for when my student comes in for inclusion. But I think we need to take that a step further and be able to speak up and advocate for culture, for race, for All the other things, they're just as prevalent, they're just as painful, and they affect people just as much as a disability would. So that's kind of like what I've been thinking about, just how we keep that lens as we're living day-to-day, talking to our family members in school, at staff meetings, at the grocery store. Just, we don't have to make big statements, but just being aware and starting to see that these things are everywhere, and we should view this as the same equity issue as disabilities.
0: I love that as you were talking, I was thinking like TVIs and OMs. we are really good at advocating for our students' needs. We will go up against traffic engineers. We will go up against like what feels like a big conglomerate. But it's also like a really good reminder that you need to stand up for not just the disability, but also all of the other issues that are at play here.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the only way we're going to really make change, it's not We might not reach the old people that won't change their thought, okay? I'm not going to reach my me personally. I'm not going to be able to really change the mind of my grandpa right now. He's a white man who lives in northern Minnesota. I'm not going to change that for him. It just, it will not go through his mind. But my day-to-day life, the day-to-day people that I'm going to interact with, the kids that I have access to, the school systems in place that I can advocate for subtle changes that maybe over the span of 10 years are going to make a big difference. That's the stuff I can do because if all of us are doing those small things in 10 years, it will look different. It will. The kindergartners we have will be 10th graders. It will be very, very different. And I think that's what I've been trying to think of more than like, The huge massive thing, because what's one teacher going to do that's massive? But all of this, all the teachers that are thinking about these things together is going to be crazy different in 10 years.
0: I love that perspective. Sometimes it can feel like, yeah, I'm just one person. What can I do? Or people can start to take on the shame of their privilege, where it's not about that. It's not about either of those things. It's about just having that next conversation with your assistant principal, with the principal with the 504 committee or whoever to say like, hey, this is what's going on. These are the things that need to be changed. And even we as O&M specialists and TBIs work with our students one-on-one. So we often see them for such a short amount of time that just being able to you know, advocate with the special ed teacher, and maybe we can go into this next topic of collaboration and really working with the special ed teacher to make change for that student can really help in the long run, like you're talking about. hmm, for sure. So, can we go back to you saying how you worked with an O&M specialist virtually? I'd love to hear what that situation was like and maybe paint me a picture of if we wanted to do that, what that model could look like for us.
1: For sure. I think the first thing I want to say is that every OM, TVI, whatever person that I've ever worked with has always made themselves available to me. Not physically, not always physically, because in places I've worked, they've worked for all the schools. So they're at, you know, you guys have crazy, crazy schedules, but they've always been available to me that if I have these thoughts, they might be in my school one day. So I make a list that I need and they'll come and find me or I send them an email and they'll get back to me. So already creating that relationship has been super helpful because I'm not expecting that they're going to be there every day, but they've made themselves available to answer my questions and to help me just tweak a few things for different kids that I've needed support with. So with that, that is kind of what helped and lended itself to being virtual because I've already kind of built that relationship with them. And so then when I switched to having to do, you know, one-on-one calls with kids I was already communicating with them about what they were doing so I could continue that in my academic things or like what was working for them. So for example, the lady that I was working with this year, who's amazing, she already had all these, you know, little slideshows she had made and the games that had worked best and the font that was correct. And so she had already sent that to me. She communicated that with me so I could continue that while me and the kid were talking about phonics or whatever the thing was. And kind of going to like, back to that thing we were talking about, about not being able to reach every parent. That was kind of what was happening with a few of the kids. So the parents were a bit overwhelmed by the amount of different services that they had to navigate. And like if a kid's needed three times a week or wanted three times a week, but they were busy, like how do you fit all those Zoom calls in? So we started doing our calls together, which kind of helped the parent and helped the kid and helped me honestly, because. Then I could kind of really see what she was doing and piggyback off of that. And so I would like hop on calls when she was there. She would hop on my like academic calls to help the parent out and to help the kid. And usually it would be on Zoom and the two of us would be together. Sometimes you can share your screen on Zoom and on Google Hangout. And so I would share the screen and we would go through the different slideshows or we were talking about, you know, beginning sounds of words. And so I would make sure to use the pictures that she had showed me where they were outlined in. Black or whatever. And then there was one kid where the parents were working on like orientation and mobility type stuff. And so the parents were actually zooming on their phone as they were like walking through the neighborhood and talking about different things. And some of the kids would show us like the parts of their house. So how they were walking through their house so that she could see. But then it was helpful for me to see too. So that was kind of the best way that we figured it out. And something that I really love about you know, TVI comms and whatever is that you guys really look at each kid individually. And so I've learned so much because things I wouldn't notice, even as a behavior person who's trying to pay attention to everything, there are still things I don't notice. So having that access to seeing it through her lens was really cool. And it really helped me. And so even this summer, I've emailed her a few times because I'm redoing like my calendar thing and I'm getting real pictures and want to make sure things are outlined in the right color and making sure the fonts work. So I've been like trying to get info from her and she's really been helping me. So yeah, I think virtually it actually kind of worked. It honestly kind of worked weirdly better than in person because in person you guys take them one-on-one and I'm just teaching and I have so many other things. I don't get to see it and I get to hear it, you know, after the fact, but I got to see it firsthand. So that was cool.
0: That is really cool. And I was telling you before we started recording that you were the second person in less than a week to say how the special ed teacher and the O&M working together virtually worked so well. I've always actually been a fan of the push in model, especially for younger kids where I like go into the classroom. Sometimes I will admit it's a little bit weird, right? Because I'm like stepping into your space. And then I have to also be the teacher, but like whisper while you're talking to other kids or like yeah. navigate the who's in charge realm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it really does feel like especially, especially because what the o specialists can do virtually are things that the special education team can easily take into their own lessons. It's not like yes. we can't teach virtually street crossings. But we can have the student walk around the room. We can talk about all of those, like what's a landmark, what's a clue, things like that. With the parent and the special ed teacher get to hear it. And then, you know, when you are doing your work, either virtually or in person, I can see how that would be so beneficial. Then you know how they teach and how Mm -hmm. they say things.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of times in the classroom, kind of like what you were saying, At least for me, I don't know how other special ed teachers are. My classroom is super personal to me, but I also know that I don't know everything. So I love when people come in and help me. But a lot of times when people are coming in, it's like mid-lesson. And in the way that a teacher is thinking, they're thinking about 3 billion things at once. And so sometimes the conversation that I could have with an O&M specialist has to be later because I'm in the middle of collecting data teaching a skill, you know, thinking about the five other things. And so I think it's less about people coming into my space and having it be, you know, weird or offensive. It's more that I actually don't have the brain space at the moment that they're walking in to have that deep conversation because I have 10 other kids. But it's always helpful when people come in. But also my other thought was that it's actually been really interesting to watch O&M stuff (laughs) in a house. Because if I'm being honest, the kids are more comfortable in their house. So they're not actually using the right skills. They're not really, really utilizing what everyone's trying to teach them because they're so used to their hallway. They're so used to their room. And so I actually did find that was the one thing that was tricky to get them out of that because they don't need help navigating their house and their bedroom because they've got their parents there and they've done it every day for their whole life. It's, The other stuff, but it's hard to get at that other stuff when you're in your house. So that was the one thing that I think was tricky, but we might not be able to like control that because depending on how schools are going to be. But that was one thing I noticed was kind of difficult.
0: That makes sense. It kind of reminds me of I don't know if you've heard of retinitis pigmentosa. It's something that really happens later. Yeah, when they become like an adolescent and they start losing their vision. And a lot of times, If you work for a district in your orientation and mobility specialist, you A, have to pull the kid at a specific time depending upon their academic schedule, but also the student isn't technically visually impaired during the school day. It's only at night. So it's, that part can be like tricky, like put on a blindfold, my friend, because I know it's 2 p.m. and you can see fine. But, you know, come 7 p.m. when you have to go get the mail or when you want to go on a date or when you want to go to work or when, you know, you need to like you step into a closet or when it gets shady underneath a tree or something like that, you're going to eventually need these skills. So it's kind of like superimposing, like the skill, even though it's not, there's no like natural motivation in that environment. Exactly. Yeah. Well, When you are teaching in the classroom, what are some of the best ways that you have found to collaborate with an orientation and mobility specialist?
1: Wow, so many. I think like I was saying beforehand, if I get an idea, I'll write them down. I actually have note cards for different people with the speech. Everybody as I see things, I want to write them down. But I think if the best way is if someone is gonna be there all day, like say the OM specialist is gonna be there all day to see all the kids in that building. I'll try to find them in the morning. I tend to have most of their caseload, right? Like say me and one other teacher are the ones with severe disabilities, right? So I'll like try to find them and make sure that they come and talk to me. I'll email them ahead of time, a bunch of things I need help with. And it's helpful for me to know if they're going to be around. Like I might be in around from 11 to 1. So at least I have it in my head that during those times they might stop by that's really helpful. Also leaving me, if they can't access me because I'm teaching something else, leaving me a note of the things that they did with the kid. And also anytime they learn something cool, you guys are going to conferences, learning all sorts of stuff all the time, because I feel like that's such a tight knit community of people. And so they'll learn things, they'll learn a cool app or a new font, little looking thing. And they always try to share it with me. And so that's been really, really helpful. And yeah, I guess overall just making themselves available. I had this weird moment. One of my paraprofessionals had horrible migraines. And so we had to keep the lights off because the fluorescent light was causing her like horrible migraines. So I wanted to be respectful of her. But I had a couple lamps, but I also had two kids with some severe vision stuff and they couldn't see. They couldn't see their paper. They couldn't see, even with a black marker that I knew enough to give them, whatever, they could not see the paper. And it was affecting their behavior. It was affecting all the other stuff. And I just like, wasn't thinking straight. So I knew that the guy was coming on Wednesday and I really liked working with him. I sent him like a long email, like my emotions about this. And he was so kind to me. (laughs) So I think sometimes they're good for like venting too. And then he came with like three lamps that attached to the table, just little like special lamps. you just turn them right on, put them on the kid's table, boom, boom, put the light right on the little sheet of paper. And the kid was good to go. Like how simple I could have done that, but I just needed him to help me as an emotional support too, because just teaching, you have 3 billion other things to think about. So those are some of the ways that I feel like collaborating has really helped me and how they've really helped me understand and educate me in a way that's not super overwhelming. And they've made themselves available for when I needed
0: help. One thing I also hear is like understanding acceptance of where you are and not shaming you for doing things in a different way or not thinking of that small lamp. Like that's, we have such a narrow focus. And yes, it's sometimes I think it can be hard for orientation mobility specialists, especially if they're not dual TBIs and OMs, if they were trained on that one area of the ECC versus like all nine areas of the ECC, to really take a step back and be like, hey, let's put myself in the actual teacher's shoes. And they may not know, like, I'm sure the O&M specialists, had they just walked by your classroom, they could have been like, uh, you know, that kid, like, why are the lights off? Yeah. And in his reaction, he didn't do that. He listened to you and he provided a solution that in retrospect may seem like, oh, I should have known that. But really, you do have so many other things going on. You also had a professional that was having migraines because of fluorescent lights. Right. I and don't want them to
1: lose their job, you know?
0: And I think I would never expect
1: a TVI, right? Or anything to know how to teach reading. I would never expect that. They can help me and provide the accommodations. And that's the thing. The U.S. are so good at accommodations and modifications, and that's necessary. But it's a small population of people, and it's a small part of accommodations and modifications. And so it is super helpful. And I think some teachers can be kind of pompous if they think they know everything. But like, I don't. Come on, people. Like, I studied certain things. I did not study other things, you know, and I need help. I don't know all the speech stuff. I don't know all the OT sensory stuff. That's not what I spent six years studying. And so it's the best when everybody can come together in a meeting and we're talking about a kid and case managing this whole thing out, trying to solve some problems and everybody can sprinkle in their knowledge and have it be in such a positive understanding and like educating type of way. And I think that's when you get the best community in the best collaboration and when the kid's actually going to make progress, right? Because I've worked with some bad, not those people, but bad speech people who've like put me down and I'm like, I'm not going to help you. I'm not going to give you data. That's just me being sassy and petty. <laughs> like You're being so rude to me. So I think just having, yeah, having that like positive culture and and teachers are so grateful because like I said, so much is happening. I'm like, Thank God these people exist. I want to give them all gifts because I need so much help all the time. So,
0: Well, that's so nice. Okay, so it has been a while that we've been talking, and I feel like I could talk to you for so long, but I want to be respectful of everybody's time. Our goal for this whole podcast is just a reminder that you don't have to be perfect at every single thing, and I think that you definitely stand in that. And But we do want to make sure that every day we are taking a step forward towards just being better teachers so that way our students can lead their very best lives. And I'd love to know from you if you have any last tips of how our community can take one step forward in being better at what we do in any way so that way we can help support special educators.
1: Yeah, I think taking one step forward or just one way I always think about this as like to really listen first and read the room. So like, you know, you guys kind of teach that to kids that like listening to what people are saying and assume that they have great intentions. And that's a practice I'm trying to do too. So like in a professional setting or working with kids, listening to them and assuming that they have the best intentions. And so then I can make a well-informed comment out of my mouth before I start running my oh that's my own weakness is running my own mouth but i think just in any professional setting or working with challenging kids or working with some significant disabilities like what you guys see just taking a moment to like listen first before coming in with your thoughts 100% and that sounds kind of weird but it's everybody should be doing that right teachers any specialist. so that's kind of what i think of as like one small step cuz it doesn't take much work
0: that's amazing And I think that's something that we actually haven't heard thus far on the podcast. Oh, great. Unique. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I love it. All right. Well, I have loved connecting with you on Instagram, but I know you also have YouTube. You have a Teachers Pay Teachers that I am grabbing all of your things for my own kids, my own students. And you have a podcast. I know that sounds like a lot, you guys, but Raelynn, can you tell us where people can come find you? And then you guys will have all of the links to everything for her on our show notes on our website. So you can follow her wherever.
1: Yeah. So all of my stuff is under that special educator. So everything has the same name and it's mostly geared towards special ed teachers. So if there's a lot of stuff that's free, I mean, every podcast, every video is free and a lot of things on Teachers Pay Teachers are free. And so if it's more about special ed and supporting behaviors and supporting all of that stuff. So if that's something that people want to learn more about to inform their practice, then they can go check it out. So wonderful.
0: I know I actually really like your podcast. I've watched a few of your YouTube videos and there's IEP data graph generators and early intervention IFSP. I can't even say it when I read it. Caseload Me. documentations. There's also some like a Google key theme, like there are things that you have created and put together that we can definitely use. And I love also being able to like hear the other side of it, because I think it makes us more well-rounded. So even if you are an orientation and mobility specialist or TBI, and you're listening to this, I urge you to go connect with Braylon on any of those platforms again we'll have the links in the show notes on our website and thank you so much Baylin for coming on this has been absolutely amazing.
1: Oh, thank you so much this was so fun thanks for having
0: me. You know that feeling when you've been rushing around all day your kids need food your students need to be scheduled it's 5 minutes before your next lesson and you have no plans. Teaching during a pandemic has had many challenges. Wouldn't you agree? One of which being, it takes so much longer to plan for a remote o lesson than it did to plan for a face-to-face lesson. But that's not a problem anymore because my friend, we have got you covered. Your Allied Independence community stepped up And we've bundled together eight remote O&M lesson plans that can be taught virtually or distance, all created by your community and customizable to your individual students' unique needs in five minutes or less. You want them? I know you do. All you have to do is go to alliedindependenceonline.com forward slash remote R E M O T E and grab your copy. Eight free remote OM lesson plans. So you can start spending your time doing what you do best. And that, my friend, is teaching.